The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 and 16 through 18. James 1, chapter James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 and 16 through 18. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of God for the people of God. Well, let me remind you why we're here. Uh, we're here because there is a God and because that God has spoken. If there's not a God, then we're wasting our time here. And if God hasn't communicated with us, then we're wasting our time here. But because there is a God and because that God has spoken in his word, then it matters that we understand who God is and what God has said. So that's what we're here to do this morning. And I know what you're thinking as you heard that text in James read right off the bat. You're thinking, well, I guess there's no room for doubt in the Christian faith, right? I mean, James says, hey, if you doubt, don't expect God to answer your prayer. So I guess there's no room for questions or doubts of any kind. Well, that's not what the text is saying. And I'm excited to jump into it together to discover what it is saying and how it is a little different from what it sounds like at first glance. Uh, my name is Bob. If I haven't met you yet, welcome. Um, we began last week a study of this book, James, in the New Testament. And last week we talked about the problem with our desires. James chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at last week. It says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so perhaps you came away from last week's sermon thinking that the answer to that problem is to weaken your desires. If you just desired stuff a little bit less, maybe that's the answer. But I want you to consider this provocative quote from C.S. Lewis from his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for it, or to hope for the enjoyment of it, is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex 
and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are half-hearted creatures. That quote has always haunted me because of that line. That describes me. I wonder if it describes you as well. Half-hearted. We're sort of in with God, but we're still keeping one foot in the world. We're mostly committed to Christ, but we wouldn't want to be radicals, you know. Aren't you kind of tired of that half-hearted kind of existence? Don't you long to give yourself fully to God? To be all in with Christ and with his cause? I wonder, what is it that keeps us from doing that? What is it that keeps you from being all in with Christ and his people? I suspect there may be at least two reasons why we hesitate to give ourselves fully and completely to God. The first is the problem of infinite choice. And you know about this problem if you've ever gone grocery shopping, right? When I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago, y'all, it was still true that certain foods were only available in season, right? Around here, corn on the cob was one of those kinds of foods. In Nebraska, it was about this time of the summer that sweet corn used to go on sale at the grocery store and on roadside stands all over the place. And I remember we in our house would eat corn on the cob almost every meal for a month or two. But then it went away until the following year. And so there's just a time of the year where it's like, it's corn on the cob time. That's what we have now. But now, now we live in a society where you can buy any food you want any time of year. Because of the reality of global shipping and the ability to import food from the southern hemisphere, it's hard to find a food these days that's out of season. In every area of our lives, not just groceries, we have more options and more choice than anyone has ever had in human history. And that reality of infinite choice is actually quite paralyzing. Because if we choose one thing, we might be missing out on something else. And so some of us hesitate to go all in with God because we haven't yet explored all the options, right? I mean, what if there's some other religion or worldview out there that we haven't explored yet? What if there's some questions we haven't thought about yet? What if there's some things we should be thinking through that we just don't know we should be thinking through yet? The reality of infinite choice can keep us from giving ourselves fully to God. But there's a second thing that keeps us from going all in with God. It's a little more personal and perhaps a little more powerful. And that is because deep down, we fear that God is a taker. Some of us have given our trust, our loyalty, our friendship to other people in our lives, and they have been takers. And so we fear that God, likewise, is a taker. That at the end of the day, if we go all in with God, we're going to end up on the losing end of that scenario. Friends, here's the good news of the Scriptures this morning. God is not a taker. That's what James wants to show us this morning. 
The simple big idea of this passage of James this morning is this. Because God is a giver, you should give yourself fully to him. Because God is a giver, you should give yourself fully to him. James wants you and I to unreservedly, joyfully go all in with God and with his purposes in the world. And the reason we should do that, the reason it's okay and wise and good for us to do that is because God is a giver by nature. You will never outgive God. And so it's utterly safe and reasonable for you and I to give ourselves fully to him. So let's take a look. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. It's page 950 in the Bible under your seat, if you happen to be using that Bible. And let's look at the text we've already heard read, beginning in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The thing we need to get clear on here to understand what James is saying is what the text means by the word doubt. Because when we hear doubt as 21st century Americans, we tend to think of something that's intellectual, right? I mean, we live in an age of doubt, don't we? The famous Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has called the age we live in a cross-pressured age. And what he means by that is no matter what worldview you hold and no matter how confidently you hold it, we live in a world where there's always pressures coming against that, which means that the most committed religious believers tend to be haunted by doubt and the most committed unbelievers are also haunted by the possibility of belief. We just live in a world mired in doubt. But to understand what James means when he talks about doubt, notice that in verse 8, the doubting person is also called double-minded. It's a word that literally means to be facing both ways. Alex Matir helps us. He says the problem here is not intellectual doubt but moral and spiritual commitment. I mean, just think about what we mean when we say that someone is single-minded about something. What we mean is they're fully devoted to it. Like they're all in on this thing. James isn't saying you can't have any intellectual doubts, can't have any unresolved questions. What he is saying is you've got to be all in with God, despite your doubts. You got to be fully committed to his wisdom, to wanting what he actually has to give. When I was a freshman in college, some of the guys that lived down the hall from me in the dorm were into rock climbing and rappelling. And so the second or third week on campus, Kevin, his buddy down the hall, came down and said, hey, a bunch of us are going rappelling this weekend. You want to go? So I said, sure. So on Friday afternoon after classes, a bunch of us jumped in a couple cars and drove to the Ozark Mountains, and we went rappelling. And so Kevin, who was the guy that had all the gear and all the stuff, you know, the rest of us were just along for the experience, but Kevin was the guy that had all the stuff. And so uh, we 
went up to the top of this 100-foot cliff, and he tied off this webbing on some trees and rocks and attached a rope to it and threw the rope over the edge of the cliff and then sent this other guy, Brady, down there to belay. And he's like, all right, who wants to go first? I was like, I guess I'll go. So he's like, all right, well, here's what you're going to do. So I put this harness on. He's like, all right, you're going to clip into this rope. Then you're going to put your heels against the edge of this cliff. And then, Bob, this is going to be the hardest thing. You just got to lean your whole body back off this cliff. And it's going to feel terrifying. But unless you entrust your whole self to the harness and to the rope, you're never going to repel. So you, you just got to lay back over the cliff and go for it. I was like, all right, got it. I understand what you're saying. Friends, in that moment, here's what I can assure you. I had all kinds of doubts about whether this was even a good idea. And things like, what if the tree we tied this to comes unrooted? What if this rope is bad? What if Brady down there at the bottom of the cliff doesn't even know what he's doing? There are a lot of things that could go wrong here, right? This is not a moment when I had no doubt. However, the reality was to experience the joy of repelling, I really did have to just lay my whole body back over that cliff. And eventually, somehow by the grace of God, I worked up the courage to do that. And it was really a fun experience. But I never forgot that moment of how terrifying it is to just say, so you're saying just lay back over this cliff. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? In the midst of my doubts about that, I still had to go all in. I had to entrust the full weight of my body to the harness, to the rope, to the carabiner, and ultimately to the providence of God. And friends, James, likewise, isn't talking about intellectual doubt. He's talking about commitment, Verse 6 says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. A wave is always in flux, right? I mean, the interesting thing about a wave is there's no way you can get hold of it and say, here it is. What James is saying is some human beings are like that. They want to follow God one day, but the next day they're not so sure. They want the wisdom of God in one moment, but the wisdom of the world the next moment. Maybe you're a person like that. Maybe you can resonate with that. If so, James is asking you to make a decision. He's essentially making the same appeal that the prophet Elijah makes in 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. See, the people in Elijah's day were double-minded. They would show up and worship God, but then they'd also go make sacrifices to the Canaanite gods, you know, just in case. God does not want that kind of double-minded uncertainty. He wants all of you and all of me. So here's the question James is asking. He's not asking the question, do you have any unresolved questions? Is there any doubts you have intellectually? What he's asking is, have you given yourself over totally and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't, would you make today the day? James is saying that's the kind of person that can expect to receive wisdom from God when they ask for it. Bill Bright was a famous Christian leader of my grandfather's generation. He's now deceased. 
But he used to tell the story of when he and his wife first came to faith in Christ in about 1950 in Hollywood, California. At that time, Bill Bright was in his late 20s. He had a successful career in business. And he was a guy that had done a lot of real estate deals. And so as part of his normal course of business, he was familiar with the deed of trust and the fact that when you buy or sell a property, there's a document that comes with that that very clearly defines the boundaries of that property on a map and explains here's the property that you're buying or selling. And then that is passed along to the owner that comes next so that it's clear, here's the property you own. And so Bill Bright used to say when he, when he and his wife came to faith in Christ and read the New Testament and understood things like James chapter 1 and passages like Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, he and his wife sat down at their kitchen table in Hollywood, California, and they wrote out a, a deed of trust for their lives. He said, we start out by listing all of our assets, you know, house, cars, bank accounts. And then we started to think about intangible things, things like our education, our experiences in life, our business, what we had to offer the world. And then started thinking about things like relationships, kids, marriage, family, all, all the intangible things that sort of define my existence. And he said, they wrote all this out on a piece of paper. And then they just signed their names at the bottom. And just deeded all of this over to God. And then he took that document and put it in a file and put it in his office. And he said, from that point forward, whenever I wondered who my life belonged to, whenever I started to feel like I was starting to take control of things, I would just go to the file cabinet and take out that document and remind myself, nope, I already gave all this over to God. Like he's the one that owns my life now. The deed of trust is his. Everything I have is his. Everything I am is his. I'm his. Now, Maybe that feels super concrete and practical to you. Maybe that's a little too tangible. But for him, that was a way of capturing what James is saying. A way of saying, I've got to go all in. I've got to give myself over to God. That might be a great exercise for some of you to do today. It's what James is inviting. It's what he's calling you to do. He's saying, you should absolutely give yourself fully to God. Well, why should you do that? What makes that reasonable or safe or wise or intelligent? Well, you should do that, James says, because of the nature of who God is. Because God is a giver. Notice what this passage teaches us about God and about the nature of God's giving. First of all, it tells us that God gives generously. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Now the word generously here is literally a word in the Greek language that means singly or simply. What it's saying to you is God is not double-minded. God doesn't kind of want to give you some stuff and then there's part of him that's holding back. When God gives... He gives singly and simply. He is always and only a giver. And he gives without reproach. He doesn't give you something and be like, you know what, I'm kind of bummed. That I kind of wish I hadn't given you that. Could I have that back maybe? He doesn't do that. He's not frustrated with you for asking. God is a giver who gives generously to all 
without reproach. That's the first thing we see about the nature of God as a giver. But notice, secondly, God gives freely. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift is from above. In other words, God gives freely. There's no good thing in life that you enjoy that isn't from him. Think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to you and I that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why should we do that? He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he, the Father, makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you realize the radicalness of what Jesus is saying? He's saying, even if you don't believe in God, even if your whole life is lived in rebellion against God, every good thing you enjoy is still from him. Every good gift is from above. God gives freely. Last Sunday night, my wife and I had uh, the elders of our church and their wives over for dinner. Um, God has given us a wonderful team of elders who help to serve and lead this church. And so occasionally, we just set aside some time to eat a meal together and pray together and care for one another and love one another and talk about life and just have some unhurried time of fellowship. And so last Sunday night, uh, we did that at our house. And so I told the elders a few weeks before, hey, we want to have you guys over and I'm going I'm to cook some steaks. We're going to have a nice steak dinner. And uh, Aaron Onyfrock, one of our elders, was like, hey, is it cool if I get the steaks? And at first, I was a little offended. Like, you don't trust me to buy a steak? Like, what kind of a person do you think I am, man? This is Nebraska. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you don't know how to buy a steak around here, I don't know where you're from. So I was a little offended, but then Aaron's like, no, no, I got a guy. And, I, you know, when somebody has a guy, you just, you go with the guy, right? He's like, well, Okay. So I was like, cool. So Thursday, Aaron shows up at my house with a box full of Wagyu beef picana steaks. This is a cut of meat you can't even buy at the grocery store. You can only get it from a custom butcher because it's that nice of a cut of meat. And he's like, hey, these are some really nice steaks. I trust you know what to do with them. And then he left. <laughs> so my wife and I were on Google for like a few hours. Because we're like, well, I can't mess this up. Now I feel a lot of pressure all of a sudden. I was just going to cook a regular steak, but now I'm cooking the kind of steak you can't even buy at the grocery store, and I don't want to mess this up. So we did some Google research. I borrowed a grill. So I had two grills going in the backyard. One was a charring grill, and one was a finishing grill. We were moving them from one to the other. Man, it was, it was a production. But you know what? Last Sunday night, we sat around our kitchen table, and we ate those steaks. And friends, here's what I'm going to tell you. They were a good gift <laughs> from the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Like, here's what's funny about that. It's like anyone eating that steak would think like, oh, this is a good steak, right? This is a good, good cut of meat. This is really good. But a Christian having that same experience knows who it is to give thanks to for that good gift, right? Like we don't just receive that gift as though it came from nowhere. We realize, man, that moment of friendship around a table that moment of a good meal 
that friend who said, hey, I got a guy. That, those are gifts from the Lord, right? God gives freely. And friends, the beautiful thing about being a worshiper of God is every good gift we enjoy, we know where it came from and who to thank for it. God gives freely. Third, notice James tells us God gives consistently. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. As you know, the New Testament writers were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And that often comes out in their writing. And it's quite likely that James here is thinking of the promise of Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36 where Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. God is talking about here about, about his faithfulness, his commitment to his people. And when God wants to draw our minds to something stable and fixed and unchanging, he speaks of the sun and moon and stars, the fixed order of the universe. And so James wants you to know God is the creator who gave us the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. He is the father of lights. And he does not change. Like the fixed order of the universe, he is stable and lasting and consistent. As sure as the sun is going to come up tomorrow, God is going to keep giving good gifts to his people. And yet there's also a contrast here, right? Because heavenly bodies change. Stars burn out and die. Galaxies pass in and out of existence. God does not. God is more stable than the changing lights. So both by comparison and by contrast, James is saying to us, God never changes. Maybe you've seen some of the amazing images that have come to us from the Webb Space Telescope. Have you guys seen some of these? Here's one. This is, uh, I'm not an astronomer, but this is Stefan's Quintet, a cluster of five galaxies. This was discovered first in the late 1800s, but the Webb Space Telescope has given us the clearest and most intense pictures of it that we've ever had. The top galaxy in that little grouping up there, which goes by the amazing name of NGC 7319. Is that the best we can do, scientists? You're going to give it a license plate number? This galaxy, NGC 7319, puts out light energy equivalent to 40 billion suns. So like, think about how intense the light of the sun is. Multiply that by 40 billion. That's what that galaxy is putting out. Listen, that's been there for your whole life and mine. We're just now having the instruments to see it more clearly, to see its glory. And what James is saying is the God who's sovereign over all of that, the Father of lights is the same one who gives you and me every good gift that we enjoy. God 
gives consistently. He keeps on giving. Now notice finally, God gives transformatively. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James is moving now from talking about every good gift that comes from the Father of lights to talking specifically about the gift of salvation. He writes, of his own will, or literally by his choice, by his decision, he, God, brought us forth, or literally gave us birth. That's the language here. James is talking here about the new birth, about being born again. Which, by the way, is the only way you can become a Christian. You don't become a Christian by going to church. You don't become a Christian by being raised in a certain kind of family. You don't become a Christian by being baptized or confirmed or going through some liturgy. You become a Christian by being born again. This is the consistent teaching of James and of 1 Peter and of Jesus in the Gospel of John. See, the Scriptures tell us that every human being is spiritually dead. Dead in sin is the language of Ephesians 2. Or like we talked about last week, right? Corrupted by fallen desires. Every one of us starts out spiritually dead. And so before you can give yourself to God, God has to first make you spiritually alive. He has to do something to act in his mercy and grace on your soul to bring you to life. And the metaphor the Bible uses for this work, this miraculous work that happens in the heart and soul of every human being who belongs to Christ, the metaphor the Bible uses is the metaphor of birth, new birth. It's here, and it's in 1 Peter, and it's in the Gospel of John. And here's why it's a powerful metaphor. You did not choose to be born. You were born as a result of decisions you had nothing to do with. Likewise, you are born again spiritually, not by something you do, but by a gift of God. Friends, God is a giver, and the most amazing thing about God's giving is that it transforms us. He gives transformatively. His giving, his grace, does something. It changes us. And notice how it happens. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Like somehow miraculously what happens is that the word of truth, the message of the gospel of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the message that these scriptures exist to proclaim to us, this word comes to you and you hear it. And as you hear this word, it births something in you. God uses that truth to do something in you and awaken you to him. So here's what this means, friends. If you're a Christian here today, it's not because you're more intelligent than anyone else. 
It's not because you're more deserving than anyone else. It's not because you're a better person than anyone else. It's because of the gift of God's grace. It's because God is a giver. That's why you're here. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Friends, this is why the songs we sing as Christians are songs of gratitude and praise and thanksgiving. This is why the truest Christian demeanor is a demeanor of humility and joy. Because at the end of the day, we have zero to boast in. We're not here because we're intelligent or smart or we figured out that we're sinners or need salvation. We're here because a gracious God brought us forth by his own will and gave us life and we trusted him and gave ourselves to him. Listen to the great Irish Bible scholar, Alec Mateer. He says this about this verse in James. This is one of the most glorious truths in the whole Bible. It teaches us that salvation is truly all of God. If anything is to be done, he must do it. If any or any blessing or change is to come to us, it must come from outside. If any agency is to be at work, it must be other than ours, for we are dead and our only activity is to increase in corruption. Here is the greatness of the divine mercy, the sufficiency of the divine strength, and the depth of the divine condescension. He has come right down to us in our death. He has raised us up into life, and it is all due to a rich mercy prompted by a great love. Inherent in this great truth of a new birth is the security of our salvation. Were salvation to depend on my choice, it would be as uncertain as my will, which fluctuates. But it is his choice. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth. And until his will changes, his word alters, or his truth is proved false, my salvation cannot be threatened or forfeited. Friends, that's the good news of salvation by grace. Which brings us right back to the big idea. Because God is a giver, you should give yourself fully to him. See, we tend to get that exactly backwards. We tend to think, if I give myself to God, maybe God will give good things to me. Maybe God will do something for me. Friends, that's religion. That's works righteousness. It's self-salvation. It's let me do something for God to try to get God to do something for me. That's the essence of all non-grace-driven religion. What do we need to do to get God to be good to us? How do we placate the deity so that God will do the thing that we want him to do? Heaven, eternal life, blessing in our lives, whatever it might be. See, religion says, if I do something for God, maybe God will do something for me. But friends, grace says, before I ever thought about doing anything for God, God had already done something for me. Grace says, before I had even thought about God, God had already sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem a people who were lost, 
who were enslaved to sin, who were chasing after their own desires, who didn't want him and weren't looking for him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans says. So see, the greatest freedom and joy comes when we fully give ourselves to God out of gratitude for what he's already freely given to us. And my longing for us, my desire for us, is that we would be a people fully given over to the Lord. Why does that make sense? Why is that good? Why is that the only reasonable thing we could possibly do? Because God, friends, is a giver. And he has already given himself fully and completely to us. Because God is a giver, we got to give ourselves fully to him. Totally. Holding nothing back. we got to sign our lives over to him and say, everything I am and everything I have and everything I will ever be belongs to you. I'm all in. With your purposes in the world, with your cause, with your people, with what your kingdom, and with what you're doing in this world right now. Friends, let's give ourselves fully over to the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we pray that even right now, you might give the gracious new birth to some in this room who know only religion and have not yet tasted of grace. Come and meet us and change us by your goodness. And then, Father, would you, out of your grace and kindness, give us the joy of giving ourselves over fully to you. Help us remember that we, when we give ourselves over to you, you get nothing out of the deal. You've already given yourself fully to us. This is for our joy. It's for our good. It's for our opportunity to be used in your purposes in the world. So, Father, this morning, would you take us more deeply into the good news of grace? Would you remind us of the radicalness of your nature as a giver? Would you help us remember we can never outgive you because you have already fully given yourself to and for your people. So give us the joy now of giving ourselves back to you in worship and gratitude and service. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.